Did you know, and most of you did probably, but there has been a pretty serious drought uh, in 2019 and 2020 in the western part of the country. Of course, you heard a lot about it in the news this last year, um, all the fires that it caused. It could be, they say that it possibly could be the worst drought experienced in that part of the country. It could be the worst drought experienced in 1,200 years. I don't know. It's played a major factor in wildfires that have destroyed literally, without exaggeration, millions of acres. If it continues, it could deplete the rivers, it could stifle crops, and it could eventually drain the water supplies in several western states. In fact, listen to me, almost 73 million people are living in areas that are affected by the drought. And yet, guys, as serious as all of that is, I really do believe there's another drought that's impacting our world, which I believe is a sign of the times, but I think it's also impacting our country in ethic proportions. I know that some of you say, Steve, don't you mean epic proportions? No, actually I mean in ethic proportions. Because you see, there is a spiritual drought that has caused a moral breakdown that is literally chipping away at the, at the traditional ethical standards. I think most of you would agree that our country, as well as the rest of the world, is hurting. Oftentimes, people will tell me, well, do you think it's a sign of the times? And I would say, what I'm talking about now, yes, I believe it's a sign of the times because it's affecting more than the United States. It's literally affecting the world. Sometimes when we watch things happening in the U.S. and we're asking if it's a sign of the times, the things that have to do with the Lord's return happen globally. They happen around the world. So those are the things to pay close attention to. But the things that we're seeing, not just in the U.S., but around the world, is our national debt, COVID, racism, crime, political chaos, riots in the streets, threats of terrorism, not to mention all the natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes and fires and tornadoes. We also see the influence of Christianity continuing to decline at a very rapid pace. Now, I know everybody has thoughts on how to best fix this problem, and so we say, well, then what is the solution? I can tell you it's not going to be found in global warming. It's not going to be found in putting more police on the streets. It's not going to be found in politics. It's not going to be found in the economy. Christians, the key to survival, and what I'm talking about, the key to survival is revival. America absolutely needs, the world absolutely needs a spiritual foundation, a spiritual compass that will direct us back to true north, back to God's plan. Listen, I've said this to you many times before, but I believe that Jesus is the only hope to America's problems. It's the only hope to America's problems. It's the only hope to our global problems. But friends, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus works through the local church. Jesus works through the local church. The church is the hope of the world. So if we've been praying for revival in America, what we should be focused on is praying for revival in the church, not just the little C church, Northview, but the big C church, which is believers all over the world. We need to be praying for the big C church because God works through the church. Because most Americans, let me just tell you, you say, well, Steve, shouldn't we be still praying for revival in America? And I touched on this last week, but let me touch on it again. Shouldn't we be praying for revival in America? 
America doesn't necessarily need revival. What America needs is regeneration. What America needs is salvation. The majority of Americans don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you can't revive something that's never been alive. You can't revive something that's never had spiritual life. So we need to pray for the salvation of the lost and a spiritual awakening for Christians, a spiritual awakening for believers. Revival is the rekindling of that first love we experienced when we first met the Lord. It's basically a cry for more of God. It's basically saying, Lord, do it again in my life. Do it again in our church. Do it again in my family. Once that happens, then the church will fulfill the obligations or the responsibilities to take the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and hurting world. If the church comes out of its spiritual slumber and starts to be passionate about the things of God, that's when we will see revival in our families. That's when we'll see revival in the church. And the rest of the world, I believe, will then experience more of a move of God because they'll see the peace, they'll see the joy that we're experiencing in our life, and they'll want it. They'll say, I don't know what it is about her. I don't know what it is about him, but I want that in my life as well. And they start asking questions and open the door for us to talk about spiritual things. I mentioned to you last week that the theme verse for revival in Scripture is oftentimes 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. It's the passage that most people think about when you think about revival. And so I want us to look at that, if we could, and I want us to break it down. But let's read it first. It says, if my people, let me just point that out and I'll come back to it in just a second. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Did you notice there the word if? The very first word of that particular verse is if, if my people. So from, why is that important? Because from the very first word, he's telling us this is a prerequisite. In other words, if, if something happens, then this is what I'll do. This is the promise that I make the church. This is the promise that I make believers if this happens. So we see right out of the gate, he starts off letting us know this is a prerequisite. There's, guys, there's over 7,000 promises in the Word of God. And every promise of God has a prerequisite except for one. And the only one that doesn't have a prerequisite is the love of God. God loves you and he loves me and there's nothing we have to do to earn that. There's nothing we, there's, we, there's nothing we have to do to, as our part. God just loves you. Whether you want his love or not, God just loves you. So you can, every other promise in the word of God has a prerequisite. Every other promise says, hey, God is faithful to do his part if you are faithful to do your part. And so therefore we can say, and I've shared this with you many times before, and so therefore we can say it's like a partnership with God God is faithful. So if, so the two words, and I, and I pointed them both out, the two words that I want you to pay attention to are the words if and then. These two words indicate there is a part that we play. There is something that we have to do. And when we do it, God is always faithful to do his part. So he says what? He says, if my people. 
Now, guys, if I were to say, everyone, if I were to stand up here and announce and I'd say, after the service today, I want every one of my family to meet me out in the atrium. Well, there would be no question what I'm asking for. Everybody would know, and you would self-identify. You would immediately, if you're one of my family members, you'd say, oh, he wants to meet us in the atrium. If you're not, you would dismiss it. You wouldn't even give it a thought or not. So God starts out, and he says, if my people. So the question that I need to ask you guys is, are you one of his people? Are you one of God's people? If you say, well, yes, I'm a child of God. I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Christ. Then he's talking to you. And so if he's talking to you, you want to lend an ear. You want to you listen to what it is that he's saying. He then clarifies it to make sure that there's no question what it is that he's asking for. He says, if my people who are called by my name, are you one of his people? Are you called by his name, the name of Jesus? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christ follower? Do you instinctively know you're a part of the family of God? Or do you say, Uh, I have some doubts. I don't know. I think maybe, yeah, but I don't really know. You have questions about whether you are a part of the family of God or not. So what if I said, what if I stood up here to announce and I said, I want all of those who are part of God's family to meet me after the service. Everybody that's a part of God's family, I want you to meet me in the atrium after the service. What would you say? Would you immediately shut up and say, well, he's not talking to me? Or would you say, oh, I'm a part of God's family. He wants to meet me. So yeah, I'll meet him out there. How would you self-identify yourself if that's what I were asking? Or would you just not be sure if you were supposed to show up or not? You see, friends, before you can have a spiritual awakening, listen to me on this. This is important. This is really the main point I want to address tonight, and that is, Before you can have a spiritual awakening in your life, you first have to settle the issue whether you're a child of God. It's a mute point. Spiritual awakening or revival is a mute point for you if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life. If you've never done that, then that's where it all begins. Don't worry about this topic we're on revival. Don't worry about spiritual awakening. Decide right now that I've got to settle this issue on whether I want Jesus Christ to be my Savior and Lord. Because regardless, listen to me guys, please, regardless what some people might tell you, not everyone is a part of the family of God. Now don't get me wrong here, I don't, I don't wanna confuse anyone, don't get me wrong, God is the creator of all human beings. God is the creator of all mankind, but he's only a father, he's only a father to those that have invited Jesus Christ into his life. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, examine yourself. This is a big deal. Examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. He says, you need to make sure. You've got to settle this question. You can't just let that hang out there. You can't just, listen, sometimes, please hear me, sometimes, you know, you start attending church to seek out the things of God, and you can find yourself in just a habit. You never really settle the issue. Maybe you come for weeks or months or years. 
You even can come for years, but you've never really settled the issue. If somebody said to you, do you believe in God? You'd say yes. Do you believe he's the savior of the world? Yes. Have you actually invited him to come into your life? Well, not really. I mean, I come on a regular basis, but not really. Guys, it's really imperative that you settle this issue once and for all. That's what Paul's talking about, that you need to do self-examination. Just because you were raised in a Christian home does not mean you're a Christian. Attending church on a regular basis does not mean you're a Christian. Even baptism, listen to me, even baptism is no assurance that you're saved. If you've not put your trust in Christ, then the only thing baptism will do is get you wet. And that's why you need to make sure that you at some point, at some point you've stepped across the line of faith and that you've put your hope and that you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus warned us, there will be people who think they are saved but are not. And guys, please hear me on this. There will be people who think they are saved because maybe they go to church or because everyone else in their life is a Christian. And so that doesn't that automatically, osmosis, doesn't that automatically make me a Christian? Matthew 7, he says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. The will of the Father, of course, is to invite him into your life as part of that. There has to be a point, there has to be a moment where you've invited Christ to be the boss of your life. Listen. When you invite Jesus Christ into your life, there is a transformation that changes the direction of your life. You've heard me talk about this passage so many times before in 2 Corinthians. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ, anyone that's really a Christian, that's truly invited him into their life, has become a new person. The old life is gone, the new life has begun. Now, it doesn't mean that you're no, it doesn't mean, guys, that you're no longer gonna sin. It doesn't mean that you're no longer going to make mistakes because every single one of us are going to make mistakes, but it does mean true salvation brings a change that puts you on a healthy path. And that path continues until the day you die or until Jesus Christ returns again. So then what is it? You say, okay, Steve, I'm with you. So then what is it that you should be looking for? Well, the question would be, first of all, do you love Jesus? Well, yeah. I, I, I would say I love Jesus, yes. I think the answer is yes, I think so. How do you really know? John talks about it in 1 John. He says, and we can be sure. Isn't that what we're wanting? We're wanting to be sure. And we can be sure that we know him if, there it is, there's the prerequisite, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. So what's the key here? Obedience. Those who obey. So obedience is the evidence. Obedience to the truth of God's word. Obedience to the evidence that he is truly the resurrected Messiah. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we're living in him. This is how we know we're living in him. Genuine love is demonstrated through obedience. When I love my wife, if she asks me to do something, I want to do it to please her. Why? Because I love her. It should be the same way in our relationship with God. 
Listen, if you never obey God, or if you have no concern to do his will, or if your life doesn't reflect Christ, or if you continually walk in darkness, then there's no evidence. There is no evidence of a relationship. Now listen to me, please, because I know what some of you are thinking. I am not trying to judge anyone. This is what the scripture says. I'm just trying to to show you what the scripture teaches. So obedience to God is the evidence of our love, as well as our conviction of sin. That's important. In other words, if I'm truly in love with God, then I should feel a conviction. I should feel bad if I'm sinning against him. In other words, that's willful sin. It's like I know it's wrong. I don't care that it's wrong. That's willful sin. Willful sin, Hebrews actually talks about this several times. But willful sin is when you just say, you know what, I I know it's wrong, but I don't care. God will forgive me. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, that's obviously not love. Because if you truly love someone, you're going to want to please that person that you love. You're going to want to respect that person that you love. And so if you're truly in love with God, then I should feel bad if I'm sinning against him. Does that make sense? I hope so. Conviction of sin is God's way of inviting you to restore fellowship with him. Henry Blackaby uh, is a great author. Um, I talk about his book often. You've heard me talk about Experiencing God, um, which is probably one of the best books. It's an older book, but it's one of the best books written on um, knowing the will of God in your life. It's one of my top 10 books that I've got in Capstone if you haven't read it. It's a great, great book. But here's a quote out of one of his books that I love. It says, when, when holy God draws near in true revival, people come under terrible conviction of sin. When the holy God draws near in true revival, people come under terrible conviction of sin. The outstanding feature of spiritual awakening has been the profound consciousness of the presence and holiness of God. So all of a sudden, when you decide to, when you're spiritually alive, all of a sudden, you care about what he thinks. You care about what he wants. And so you're very much aware of disobedience. You're very much aware of rebellion in your life. First John says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. This is also telling us we're not perfect. We're far from it. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to mess up at times. We're all going to have failures along the way. It's, I heard it said it's kind of like the Missouri River. It makes all kinds of twists and turns, but it's always going in the same direction. In the same way, even if you do make mistakes along the way and have some failures along the way, are you still focused on moving towards God? Are you still going in the right direction? It's like, I might be off here and need to repent, but I'm still trying to refocus and guide myself back onto him. It only, listen, he also makes it clear that God will forgive us when we sin. So when I mess up, I don't need to listen to the lies of the enemy trying to pour condemnation on me, telling me what a loser I am, because I can ask for God's forgiveness and know that he forgives me. Jesus said in John chapter 13, so now, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 
Loving one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. A true Christian is someone that demonstrates love to one another. I'm telling you, in the cancel culture that we're living now, it's everything but that. I mean, best friends are at each other's throats. And that's why, as believers, we need to open our eyes and recognize what's happening. We need a biblical worldview again. We've got to come back and refocus on God and recognize what matters is that we have an obligation and we have a responsibility to love one another. So, do people call you by Christ's name? Do they call you a Christian? Do they look at your life and your commitment to Christ and the power of God working through you and say, that guy must be a Christian. That gal must be a believer. I can tell by the way she lives her life that she's a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now we know who he's talking to. He's talking to believers. What does he want us to do? He gives us four things that are prerequisites. The first thing that he gives us, number one, is he says to humble themselves. So you and I, put ourselves in this, you and I have a responsibility to humble ourselves. It's something you have to do. When it comes to humility, when it comes to humbling ourselves, we, listen to me, our leaning is gonna be more towards pride. Our leaning is gonna be more towards self-centeredness. So humility is something we have to choose. Humility is something we have to make a decision we're gonna do. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, we are constantly told that we need to humble ourselves. We see it over and over and over again. In 1 Peter chapter five, it says, and all of you dress yourselves in humility. That's pretty strong. Dress yourselves, clothe yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Let me tell you something, guys. It's a whole lot easier and less painful to humble yourself than it is to have God humble you. I'd much rather make the choice and do it myself than to have God bring me to my knees. Because I could tell you stories in my life where God's brought me to my knees because I needed to be humbled. C.S. Lewis, who most of you know that name, who wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and he, excuse me, and he wrote the screw tape letters, so you know who that is, great author. In one of his books he wrote, he called pride, in fact he's written this in several, but he called pride the great sin. He just, that was why he labeled it. He's pride. He called it the great sin. L- listen, this is a little bit long, but listen to this. C.S. Lewis writes, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. So the more pride you have, the more you hate pride in someone else. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are merely flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Oh my gosh, I love that quote. God hates our pride. 
It's an attitude of self-sufficiency. It's the attitude that says, I don't need God. I don't need anybody as far as that goes. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. It's why the scripture tells us in several places, scripture tells us that pride goes before a fall. Because self-centered pride has to be the most unappealing sin that we have. A self-centered person puts their own wants and desires before God, puts their own wants and desires before anyone else. In fact, all other, listen to me guys, all other sin is birthed from pride. For instance, the habit of lying. Why would a person tell a lie? To influence, to influence things for his or, own, his or her own benefit. Or what about, what about the sin of adultery? Why would a person break their marriage vows? Because of their own self-gratification. Now guys, the antidote to pride or self-centeredness is humility. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter two when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing, not some things, do nothing. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Pride is at the very heart of our sinful nature. Every, the Bible says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And pride is at the heart of all that. People are willing to break the law to fulfill their own selfish desires. Whether that be cheating, whether that be fighting or abuse or theft or rape or, or uh, even murder. It's all, it's all built around self-centered pride. So it's important, guys, that we humble ourselves so that God can use us. Let, let me give you an example. God wanted to use Moses, but there was a lot of pride in Moses' life. So it wasn't until he spent 40 years on the backside of a desert, feeling like he was a nobody, until God built him up into a somebody. If we want God to use us, we have to recognize that it's all about him. It's not about us, it's all about him. Okay, the second thing that tells us uh, what we need to do, the second prerequisite is pray. I think all of us know the importance of that. I hope you do. It feels like it's one of those areas in our life that we all understand is a priority, that we all understand is important, and yet we don't do a lot of it. God wants us to pray. Prayer gets us refocused on him. That's really the key. That's really what it's doing. When I pray, immediately my attention goes back to him. That's why Paul says pray without ceasing because it's to get my attention back on him. But please understand the prayer. Hear me on this, guys. Prayer is not trying to get God on the same page with us. That's what we think it is. We have an agenda, we have a plan, and I think if I pray, I can say, come on, God, over here. This is, this is what we're planning on doing. I need you here. Prayer is not about getting God on the same page with us. Prayer is about getting us on the same page with God. God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. And so we're trying to pray so that I can refocus and redirect my life back to his purpose and plan. God wants to direct our steps, but we need to be focused on him for that to happen. I love James chapter five, one of my favorites on this topic. He says, therefore confess your sins to each other and do what? Pray for each other. So, why should you pray for each other? So that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, look at this. And you say, well, who's a, I'm not a righteous person. If you're a believer, you are. If you've invited Jesus Christ into your life, you are righteous, not by anything you've done, but by what, by what Christ did on the cross for your sins. So he's talking about you if you're a Christian. The prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of a believer is powerful and effective. It's powerful and it's effective. He said prayer is powerful and it's effective. 
Why don't we pray more? When we really, if we really believe that to be true, we would spend a whole lot more time in praying. Watch this. In Acts chapter 1, he says, they all met together. This is the history of the church, the first part of Acts. And it says, New Testament church. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. Hear that? They all met. This is corporate prayer. They all came together. They gathered together. And they were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So he says, so he says it, it was corporate prayer that took place in Acts chapter 1 that produced corporate power. We see that it was powerful. We see that it's effective when we jump over to the very next chapter. In Acts chapter 2, he says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. God was moving in a mighty way. Revival was taking place, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those that were being saved. People were being saved by the thousands. If you read on in Acts, it tells us there were like 3,000 a day that were finding Christ. So corporate prayer all of them coming together to pray. Listen to me, guys. All of them coming together to prayer brings corporate power. We want to see a move of God in the church. Listen, we need revival in our lives. But when we understand what it means to have a spiritual awakening and we start gathering together corporately, that's when corporate power takes place. You've heard me say this so many times before. Where prayer focuses, power falls. Where prayer focuses, power falls. So if we want God to forgive our sin and heal our land, then it's going to take God's people becoming serious about prayer. The third thing we need to do is, he says, seek my face. Now, guys, this is more than prayer. This is more than praying to get my needs met. To seek something is to crave after it. It's a, it's a longing. It's seeking. It's, have you ever lost something and you... You all of a sudden, all your attention goes to that lost object. You need your car keys. You can't find them. You got to go somewhere. Man, all of a sudden, you're seeking. You're longing. You're, you're intentionally looking. Nothing else. You're not paying attention to anything else right now. That's what he's talking about. To seek something is to crave. It's to bring uh, a tenacious attitude. It's the pursuit of a deeper relationship with God. This is being intentional about spending more time with him. Jeremiah chapter 29 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's exactly what he's writing about. He's saying when you are that intentional, when you are that focused on me, you're going to find me. Your relationship is going to grow. When you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. Listen. Let me just say this. It's our half-hearted pursuit of God that I think has left the church so ineffective and powerless. Not just in America. It's certainly true in America, but it's around the world. Our half-hearted pursuit of God, this idea that, well, you know, I'll do that on the weekend. I'll do it when there's a crisis. But rather than that, I'm a busy person. This half-hearted pursuit of God is not making God a priority in your life. 
And because we're not making God, and I, I point most of the fingers back to me because I see it's so true in my own life, but it's left the church ineffective and powerless. It's what has put uh, the big C church into a spiritual slumber. Not the little C church, not Northview, but the big C church. And of course, we're a part of the big C church. It's left, uh, it's left Christians around the world in a spiritual slumber. The fourth thing that we need to do is turn from our wicked ways. Now that seems obvious. And we say, well, you don't need to say much about that, Steve. But when we are in this, guys, when we're in a spirit of slumber, it can create apathy or it can create indifference. So we're not motivated to change what we're involved with. We're not motivated to break our old habits. We're not motivated to inconvenience ourselves. We're not motivated to make sacrifices. Unfortunately, many of the things that would be considered wicked ways in the world around us are just as prevalent among Christians. So in other words, do you understand what I'm saying? We can point the finger at the lost world and say, oh my gosh, that's evil. Oh my gosh, that's wicked. And yet, guys, when you start to look at statistics, you see it's just as much alive in the church world. We can talk about a divorce rate. We can say, oh, look what's happened in the divorce rate. It's just as high in the church as it is outside the church. Oh, pornography, it's such an evil thing today. Porn is just as high in the church worlds as it is outside. So we can't just point the finger at an unchurched world and say, oh, woe is all of them. When the issues are just as strong in the church, and it's because of half-hearted commitments. If we're serious, listen, if we're serious about wanting revival, if we're serious about wanting God's best, then we have to confront these things in our own life. I, I, I don't need to worry about what all you're doing. I need to worry about what I'm doing. I need to get serious in my life and say, God, forgive me. I've got to deal with this issue in my life, and you need to do it as well. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Don't bring sorrow. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own. The Bible says you are no, no longer your own. You were bought with a price. He has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. We've got to get rid of these bad habits in our life. We've got to start dealing with them. Now, your wicked ways or your bad habits are probably different than mine. And they're probably different than the person sitting across the aisle from you. For instance, I, I might have a problem with complaining and you have a problem maybe with lying. Well, the problem in all of this is the self-deception. We get to thinking that our bad habit is not quite as bad as your bad habit. You know, I know I've got some issues, but oh my gosh, they're not bad compared to yours. Well, we want to point the finger to everybody else. God says, I want you to walk away from all of your bad habits. I want you to walk away from it. I want you to seek me with all of your heart. Here's what oftentimes happens. We acknowledge the sin and we say, God, I'm so sorry. But then we, but then we don't make any effort to take the steps to get rid of it. We don't make any effort to, to, to take the steps to turn away from it. Guys, there's a difference between saying you're sorry and repentance. You know, I can say, oh, God, I did it again. I'm, I, maybe it's complaining. God, I, I'm so sorry I complained. Man, that's, I'm sorry. I see it. But then what happens tomorrow? I'm complaining again because I didn't repent. I just said I was sorry. 
Repentance, a whole different thing. Repentance is to turn 180 degrees and go the other direction. Repentance is to say, dear God, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go this way. I've been lying. God, I'm sorry for the lies I've been telling. No more. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm going this way. I'm going to be a truth teller. You've got to make those type of decisions. It's not enough to acknowledge our sin. We have to repent of it or turn away from it. Now, there are similarities in all four of these things that he's asking us to do. The first thing we see is that he wants us to be intentional about these four things. We need to decide that we're going to make an effort to do all of them. I also think, I also think that they're all related. For instance, uh, they're all related, interrelated. For instance, I probably won't pray much if I won't humble myself. You see what I'm saying? I'm not going to pray much if I won't humble myself. And I certainly won't seek his face if I won't pray. And I won't turn from my wicked ways if I'm not seeking his face. I hope you get the idea. Guys, if we're going to do our part, God promises to do what? Well, that's the second part of this verse. Then. He promises to, number one, I will hear. He promises to listen, to hear us. In Jeremiah chapter 33, he says, call to me and I will answer you. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. God has some amazing things that he wants to show us. Secondly, he promises, he says, number two, he'll forgive our sin. So he'll listen to us and he'll forgive our sin. The definition of sin is what? The definition of sin is to simply miss the mark. What's the mark? Jesus is the mark. So sin is when I miss the mark. Jesus is the mark, so it's when I miss the mark. So whatever stands between me and God and causes me to miss the mark becomes sin. It becomes idolatry, whatever that is. It it could be a thing, it could be a person, it could be a habit, whatever it is that all of a sudden gets in the way of my focus to Jesus, and so now all I see is this thing right here in front of my face. I don't care what it is. You say, well, are you saying this is, I'm not saying, I'm not calling any sin out. I'm saying whatever it might be that gets in the way of your focus with Jesus becomes sin. It's idolatry. Anything that gets more devotion than you give him is sin. So by doing these four steps, it moves uh, the obstacle that's standing between you and removes the area that's hurting your intimacy with God. And isn't that what you want? Oh, I hope so. The third promise is heal their land. He says then he'll heal their land. So healing our land must first start with God, healing the wounds in our hearts. Because until our heart is right with God, until our heart is right with God, the church is never going to be healthy. And if the church is not healthy, then the nation is never going to be healthy. The world is never going to be healthy. So the idea of God healing our land, it all starts with you, and it all starts with me. It all starts with those that profess to be believers. And a true healing for the church in America will only come through an outpouring of God's Spirit, which only comes through our obedience. So see, we've gone full circle. It only comes through our obedience. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty... May he come to me and drink. Friends, are you thirsty for more of God? Because we will never see revival until the church, or more specifically, I think I should say, until Christians are thirsty for it, until they long for it, until it becomes a priority in your life. Listen, friends, if coming to church on the weekend is all about what you want, is all about what that you want from your relationship. If it's catching up with new friends, looking forward to just seeing what somebody's wearing or what clothes they have on, 
then you will never know the kind of power the early church experienced. When we talk about the power of the New Testament church in Acts, we'll never experience that until that's really the focus or the reason that we come. We're coming because I'm coming because I want more of God. Man, it's good to see you, brother. It's good to see you, sister. Let's worship him because he alone is worthy. I want more. God, do it again in my life, God. I want more of you. We need to be hungry for more of Jesus. We need to be committed in all in. And if that happens, there'll be a spiritual awakening take place in our life. And we will see the Great Commission fulfilled. And many of our friends, and we'll see the Great Commission filled. And many of our coworkers will find Christ. So yes, I believe that God is the answer for every problem that America is facing. But for there to be change in America, it's all going to depend upon the church. The window for revival is open. We just need to respond through our obedience. But the first step, listen, I come back to this. The first step is to make sure you know him, to make sure you're a part of the family of God. 